0: Well, this morning, we are privileged to have a guest with us, and um, this guy has been super influential and um, profoundly impactful in my own life and ministry. And um, I knew Ben when I was in high school, and that was a long time ago. And uh, um, so much um, in my life I can... Um, I can really look back and say he was, he was profoundly impacting in, in a lot of the, the ministry I've been a part of and just who I am as a person has been deeply affected by Ben and his, his preaching. And not only his preaching, it's one of those people that his, his upfront sort of um, impact from the pulpit is, um, is effective because I've seen his life when he's not upfront. And when he's been at home, in his own home, in, his, in conversation with him in different kind of contexts. So um, I'm s- so excited to have him here to preach. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that he is uh, he's impacting to you this morning as much as he has been to me. So let's, um, I'm going to have Ben come up and we'll pray. But let's give him a warm <laughs> welcome while he's coming up. All right, let let me pray for Ben, and he'll open the word. Lord Jesus, you are good, and you are gracious, full of love, full of grace. And Lord, I thank you for Ben and the call that you have on his life, that you've used him in mighty ways to... Um, to teach and to mold so many, um, so many young people, myself included, and we thank you for His um, His heart and His passion for prayer, and for what that looks like in our lives, and what that can um, what that can be for us in our walk with you. I pray that you would use him this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Bless Ben as he speaks, his words be your words, in your name, amen. Well,
1: uh, thank you, Dan. He was in high school, and uh, he was my uh, third son's best friend. And so we saw him in a lot of different contexts. Uh, My dominant memory is Dan sitting quietly. He's very quiet in high school, at least around me, and uh, in our kitchen. And it was, I just can't believe I'm here. Uh, My wife, Loretta, is sitting next to Serena. And uh, uh, you need to know, and I'm getting emotional about this, Um, we moved here in 1971. In fact, August of 1971, we had been married uh, about five months, and uh, we were called uh, to join the staff of a church in La Jolla, and uh, we moved into Pacific Beach. So we lived down uh, just right down on Wilbur Street, and uh, she was 19, married a babe, and uh, <laughs> she hates it when I do that, but <laughs> but I believe it. <laughs> it was true. Uh, brought my 19-year-old bride uh, to Pacific Beach, and. Uh, Never dream- you guys, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, <sighs> uh, to be here in this place at this time with this woman and these dear friends and to be part of a church that's just starting up. We left uh, San Diego, left La Jolla and Pacific Beach uh, four years after I arrived and I started the church in Irvine, California. So I, I've been here and done that. And uh, it is uh, it, it's, it's the, one of the best things I was ever privileged to do and, uh, and some of the hardest things I've ever done. Obed, that's, that goes with it, but it's really sweet to be here. And uh, wow, this is just a wonderful time. Uh, I want to make the case for prayer. Now, maybe that seems odd to you because while we're in a church, do we need to make the case for prayer? And I think we do. I've been in a church a long time, and uh, what I'm going to share with you are things that I have come to understand over the uh, 48 years I've been in ministry. Make the case for prayer as, and I'm going to be very precise here, as um, one of the most, one of the few uh, central and radical things we do as Christians. Now, by central, I mean uh, it's, it's not everything. But, but then a hub to a wheel is not everything, except you just don't get the wheel to go. Wheels do if you don't have the hub. And So there are a few things we do that really are. At the center now again there, there's a circumference there's stuff out there you need to be doing but I believe and I believe scripture teaches that prayer is one of those central truly central things we do and radical. Uh, there's a lot we do in the life this life uh, it's just wait this is who we are. God made us creatures we're fallible and we're flesh and blood we're limited by space and time and uh, we can't do everything. And a lot of what we do is is fine, but it's surface. It doesn't get down to the heart of the matter. But prayer, again, uh, is one of those very few things that are central and, and radical. It gets down to the root. That's what our word radical comes from, it's from the Latin radix, which means the root. So prayer is central and radical, and it is a centrally radical thing we do to bring about uh, political, uh, social, and spiritual change in the world. Uh, theologian David Wells says uh, prayer is a radical and ultimately radical interference with the status quo. Now, that's what I want to make the case for. Now, but the important thing is, does Jesus agree with me? <laughs> no, better, No. do I agree with Jesus on this? And I want to uh, draw your attention to a parable Jesus told, which makes that very case. And maybe you've read it before, you never thought, central? Radical? Well, listen to the parable. It's in Luke chapter 18, the first eight verses. And uh, if you want to turn to your Bibles and your Bibles, do that, but I want you to listen to it. I I like this passage so much, I've memorized it. And uh, I'm just going to say the parable to you. And then, uh, you could, don't, but don't check right now if I'm getting it right. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing it out of the uh, new international version. And uh, Jesus will make the case here for prayer as central and radical in bringing about change, ultimately bringing about change in this world as we know it. So Luke begins the parable by saying, uh, "Then Jesus told his disciples." a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, I just have to make a comment about that line. Uh, This doesn't happen too often in the Gospels. But once in a while, a Gospel writer would say, now, now this this is what Jesus meant when he told this story. Because frankly, some of Jesus' stories are a little perplexing. So Luke wants us to know, before we hear the story, because there are are parts of the story that that can be confusing. But just know what he meant when he told this story is that we should always pray and not give up. Then he goes on to recount the story Jesus told. He said, "Uh, in a certain town, there was a, a judge who neither feared God nor cared what other people thought. And there was in that village a widow who kept coming to him with the plea uh, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Then Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Uh, will not God bring about justice? For his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, that's the parable. Now, something about parables that's very important. Jesus tells these stories, he makes the point sometimes by comparison. And sometimes by contrast. And he does this parable. He, he uses it as, as contrast for what he wants us to know about our Father. And uh, with just a few deft strokes, Jesus uh, was such a great storyteller. Uh, and a few strokes, we get a picture of the world as we know it, right? Uh, we live in a world where there is raw, callous power. That's what a judge was in the first century in the Middle East. Uh, The judge not only determined what was right or wrong, but whether or not he would do anything about it. And if the judge didn't do anything about it, nothing was done about it. And this this judge has the worst possible combination of characteristics. He's got power, raw power, and he doesn't care what God thinks, and he doesn't care what you think. And on the other hand, we have this widow, She is the embodiment of weakness. In that culture, there's no uh, social safety net. Uh, She's alone. And somebody is oppressing her. We don't don't know who it is, but they have to be pretty bad too. And this judge, (laughs) he doesn't want to help her. And I think that's the world we know about right now. There are so many uh, who are weak and powerless. And there are a few, comparatively, who have everything and they don't care. But, and here's the twist of the story. Jesus says, she keeps pestering him. <laughs> and I, I've always pictured him uh, as uh, Marlon Brando in the Godfather movie, you know. Even though I don't fear God or care about people, because this woman keeps pestering me I will see that she gets justice so that she won't attack me and, and you know and, and by the way and he adds you know I, I still don't care about God and I, I still don't care what people think but but she is just bugging me and so I'll give her justice and then Jesus makes his point by contrast will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night um In the Bible, justice is more than just getting your due, uh, being treated fairly. Justice is a one big, like with righteousness, it's just one big word that describes what happens when God rules. It's good. And will not God bring about justice for this chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? In other words, God isn't like the judge. And you're not like the widow. Well, to him. You may be exactly like the widow in terms of your worldly status, but you're not like the widow in God's eyes. Which is crazier? This is implicit, I think, in the story. Uh, A widow who keeps coming to a judge who doesn't want to help and gets help or God's chosen ones who have been given every assurance that he wants to help but don't keep coming to him day and night crying out for justice well i think the implicit question is it's crazy if the people who who've been told by by their father ask me keep on asking keep on knocking keep on seeking and then there's this uh this haunting question at the end uh and will not god bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night will he keep putting them off when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? There you have it. What's the faith that Jesus is talking about? What's well, the faith that persists in asking God, uh, pleading with God to bring about justice. Now, I think Jesus believes, and this is not the only place we would say something like this, he believes that prayer is central. It's radical. It is the ultimate interference with the status quo. The status quo being a world in which raw, callous power seems to always have the upper hand and the weak always seem to get squashed. But no. God will bring about justice. And what I want to do with the rest of the time I have this morning is tell you why I think Jesus says this. And here I have to appeal to other parts of the Bible to do it. But let me give you four reasons why Jesus says what he says about prayer. The first one is this it's because of the nature of the battle that we're in. Now, what's the nature of the battle? Well, now I have to go to the Apostle Paul, and this is one of his famous passages. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10. He says, our struggle, and by the way, when he wrote to the Ephesians, he didn't have to convince them that there was a struggle going on. They knew that. But then he wants them to know what the struggle's about. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's uh, Paul's shorthand for the things we can taste, touch, hear, smell, and see. The things that are accessible to our five senses. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and notice what what he says about our, our enemy, our enemies, but against the rulers of this dark world, against the authorities of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul wants us to know we pray because this is a spiritual battleground. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, you don't know my boss. Uh, You don't know my social situation. You don't know my economic struggle. I don't need to know. Paul knew these things. Jesus knew these things. But he wants you to know that ultimately it is not about those things. Our real enemies are not the things we think they might be. It's what's behind our real enemies. Against these powerful, invisible authorities and rulers of darkness in the heavenly realms. So the battle is not against flesh and blood. Now, we know how to do that. You can go get an MBA. <laughs> that's how you do it in that part of the world. Nothing wrong with MBAs. Uh, but when you come to the real battle, it's something that's not accessible to graduate degrees or anything like it. It's Well, to not pray in that situation is is like, Hunting lions with a squirt gun. I mean, we're, we, don't, we don't have the proper weapons. Because, you know, Paul goes on to say, put on the armor of God. And, you, you know, it's a famous passage. We love this. You know, uh, put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. You have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, the belt of truth around your waist. And, oh, but put on God's armor. How in the world do you put on God's armor? Well, Paul tells us at the end of the list of the items of armor, he says, praying in the spirit With all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, you put on the armor by prayer because, and don't miss this, the armor is God. Now, it's all over the Bible. You know, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it, and they're saved. So, why the emphasis on prayer? Because of the nature of the battle. Now my uh, my first boss, which was down there in La Jolla, uh, Louis Evans Jr., great man. Uh, when he retired, and having just retired, I, I get a kick out of this because I was teasing him about retiring. I was young and vital and energetic, and I said, Louie, what are you going to do now that you're going out to pasture? You know, of course, he didn't go out to pasture. Yeah, he continued to serve the Lord till he died. But he, uh, we were having dinner, and he didn't even look up from his plate. He just said, Well. Uh, uh, so I guess what I would say to you young bucks who think you know what's going to happen I would tell you to not take it personally and I said well don't take what personally People said, don't take it personally when it's hard it goes with the territory now I played football in college and uh, if someone knocked me down I didn't take it personally it was, that's just the nature of the game I mean, a soldier doesn't look up from a foxhole after being shot at and say, was it something I said? No. no. It is the nature of the battle to, to get hurt, to face difficulty. And so it was just saying in another way what Paul says. When I was uh, ministering in Holland, I spent 25 years working with uh, 18 to 22-year-olds, uh, seven years at Hope College in Michigan in the last, uh, well, last 18 at Westmont College out here in the West Coast. And, uh, but in Holland, Michigan, the chief of police was a, was a, a godly Christian man named John Kreidoff. And uh, John and I were talking one day, and uh, he he kind of come up through the ranks. He'd gone to high school, and he grew up in Holland. Then he became you know, a patrolman, and then finally he became chief of police. And he told me a story that just says it for me. He said, uh, when I was a patrolman, I was routinely called out to the, the west side of the city, it's right near Lake Michigan, and it was it was always the same family. Uh, it would be domestic abuse. And I'd go out to the house, and i go inside, and here was a drunk, uh, angry husband, uh, a battered wife, and four or five terrified children. And uh, I, I, would, I would arrest him, and, she, and then she would never press charges. So it happened over and over and over again. And the same scene, angry, drunk husband, battered wife, terrified children. Well, as he moved up to the ranks and uh, he was toward the end of his career as a patrolman, he said, I, I was called out to the east side of the city and it was domestic abuse again, an apartment complex, and he went inside and saw that same scene, drunk husband, angry, battered wife, terrified children. And uh, they handcuffed the husband and took him out to the patrol car. But he said, as I, as, as, as I was walking out to the patrol car with him, uh, he said to me, do, do you recognize me? And he said, well, no. He said, well, you uh, used to arrest my old man. He'd been one of those kids. And he told me, if she gets out of line, you know what to do. He said, well, as I helped him into the backseat of the patrol car, he said, I looked back at the apartment. And there was one of his little kids, his this little boy watching his dad go to jail. Okay, guys, I'm not against social services. But does anyone here th- really think we can fix that kind of thing? Yeah. No, we can't ultimately fix it. We live in a fallen world, and it's ruled temporarily. And under the providence of God, by dark, invisible powers. Uh, Here I have to quote John White. who wrote a good book on spiritual uh, warfare. He said, war is not something that illustrates aspects of Christian living. Christian living is war. Indeed, I would go further. Earthly warfare is not the real warfare. It is but a faint, ugly reflection of the real thing. It is into the real world that the Christian is to plunge. Wars on earth are but tremors felt from an earthquake light years away. The Christian's war takes place at the epicenter of the earthquake. It is infinitely more deadly while the issues that hang on it make earth's most momentous questions no more than village gossip. That's a dense quote, but I think you got it. I came back from hearing a sermon on spiritual warfare. And uh, the preacher, he had this refrain saying, you know, to, to live is to fight. And I said that to a lady in my church, a good lady. But I said, yeah, I, I, was, I was quoting this, to live is to fight. And she said, oh, no, 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 to live is Christ. <laughs> well, to live is Christ, which means to live is to fight. <laughs> uh, he's a warrior. Well, number one reason why we pray is because of the nature of the struggle that we're in. Number two reason is because the work of the church is God's work, not Obad's. <laughs> it's God's work, not yours. Remember when uh, Jesus asked the uh, disciples, "You know, who do people say that I am?" And they give kind of the the latest. Uh, Speculation on his identity. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now pay close attention to what Jesus said to Peter. And I missed this for years, even though I'd read it over and over again. He said, Peter, uh, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Ah, there's that phrase again, flesh and blood. Uh, you, you didn't figure this out. It wasn't just over a period of time you, you kind of Added it all up and said, oh, son of God. No, uh, but my father in heaven. And I just have to insert right here. Uh, y'all, it is a miracle if anyone ever believes the gospel. It's a miracle. It's not a natural thing. You know, Paul said, uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, Peter, you didn't figure this out. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. And then he said, you are Peter, which means rock. And I always, I always kind of stopped right there because I was already arguing with some of my Catholic friends who thought Peter was the, the, the rock that start, you know, upon which the church was built. Now, at least they thought that. I didn't think it. But, but I missed the best part. He said, you're, you're Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. Who builds the church? Jesus. Who does he give the privilege of joining him in this work? Well, us. Now, with that in mind, I'm, I'm going to talk about prayer again on this one. With that in mind, did you know every one of us shows up to work late every day of our lives? Who was running the universe while you slept who was building the church while you slept well jesus was now to get up in the morning and you know sort of hit the ground running like i'm apt to do and say i'm going to get out there and make something happen it's like someone showing up late for work and walking into the whole thing it's been going on for hours and he said well i'm here what are we going to do no if you're late you go to the boss and you find out what he's doing. And this is so hard for us. You know, we get, we get to work with him. And yeah, he can do anything he wants. He really can. But there's so much that he won't do until you get involved. That's true. But he's still the builder. Great psalm about prayer. It doesn't mention prayer, but of course the psalm is a Prayer. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the labors, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you stay up late and get up early, toiling. And he gives rest to those he loves. Well, but this is hard for us. Now, there's a great parable. Not, well, it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't a parable. Uh, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfigurations. I read the story in, in Mark chapter 9. He came down and three of his disciples had been with him and they came down to the plain and the rest of the disciples, the apostles, were in a big argument with some of the religious leaders and Jesus walked into the crowd and said, what are you arguing about? And a man stood up and said, master, my son is demonized. He's possessed by a dark evil power that makes him deaf and mute, that throws him to the ground. Makes him foam at the mouth and shrie- uh, just he can't make sounds. And he sometimes it throws him in the fire to burn him up. Sometimes it throws him in the water to, to drown him. And, and I brought him to you to, to, to heal him, but you weren't here. So I asked your your disciples to do it, and they couldn't. <laughs> and what did Jesus say? I'll quote him. Okay. Now I went to seminary. I had to get one course on how to heal demonized little kids. And by the way, y'all, if that is not a picture of the raw, callous power of evil, is it not a child who's dehumanized, beaten up, thrown around, yeah. our enemy, we have an enemy. But Jesus says, when they said they couldn't do it, he says, and I'm quoting him now, so you won't think I'm making this up, uh, he looks at them all and he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, isn't that a little hard of Jesus? I'm a little impatient. I mean, come on. This is not easy. But he looks at him and says, you unbelieving people, how long do I have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Well, great exchange with the father. I won't take time to look at it. But he heals the boy and he walks into the man's house and his disciples are right behind him and they ask him a question. Why couldn't we do that? And his answer is devastating. He says, and I quote him, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, Some less reliable manuscripts in the Greek uh, add fasting to prayer, but I want you to know the best manuscripts don't include fasting, which comforts me somewhat. Uh, Just kidding. No, why couldn't we do that? I said, well, you have to pray. What were they doing? I don't know, but they weren't praying. Now, listen carefully. You can build a church without prayer, you can. Just be skilled, be smart, have good marketing strategies, you can do this, but is it worth your time to build something that can only be built by prayer? Oh, it's not prayer, it's God. But in prayer, we let God be God. I've been in ministry for a long time and I want you to know I think I've wasted a lot of time by my prayerlessness. I mean, what's what's the ultimate message I give to God and to other people? Uh, Well, thanks for the offer, Lord, but I I can do this. Well, Christ builds his church. So, of course, we pray. because He. You know, when we pray, we don't just pray to Jesus. We don't just pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray with Jesus, who always lives to intercede for us. Uh, We join him in his work by praying because that's what he's doing as he works his miracles in history. Well, two more reasons why Jesus says what he says about prayer as this ultimate interference with the status quo. Prayer also gets God's work done. It does. Now, I just said it. We pray to Jesus for certain things, but we're also, whenever we do, we're praying with him. Because, And, and, you know, I like the song we sang today. It's a great song. We welcome him to this place. We don't welcome Jesus anywhere. We just say, we're glad you're here. Now he got here before we did. So, hey, we're glad you're here, Jesus. Uh, we don't just say, you know, he said, hey, I stand at the door and knock, which is pretty bad if Jesus is welcomed in. I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not, I don't rip the song. It's a good, I sing the song. I hum it, so on. Uh, but we don't, you know, he's the one who said, I'm standing at your door and knocking, would you let me in? Okay. I guess there's a place for that. But when we pray, we've already let him in. And we're saying, Lord, hear my prayers in your name. Now, there's some great examples of this in the New Testament. I'm going to just take one, but there's so many I could take time for, but I want to make sure I get to the fourth one. Uh, Paul, at the end of his letter to the Colossians, is talking about uh, one of his fellow workers who's a pastor in Colossae and some of the other churches in that part of Asia Minor. His name was Epiphus, And he closes his letter by saying this about Epaphras. He said, Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. And by the way, the word for wrestling here in the Greek is uh, agonia. It's the Greek word behind our word agony. Um, but uh, in those days, it didn't mean like great suffering. It meant fighting. It meant wrestling. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. Uh, He's like a wrestler when he prays. That you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you. Epaphras wasn't there. It's like getting a letter from Obed, uh, from London, saying, yeah, I'm working hard for you here. What are you doing? Well, I'm praying. All the years I spent as a pastor, I, <laughs> many times I just, I, I realized, you know, that if someone wanted an appointment with me, you know, I'd make every effort to let them make the appointment with me. But, but sometimes I just needed to pray. And if I told them that, uh, you know, my wife was in the hospital, I can't be there for the appointment. They'd understand. If I told them that. Uh, uh, there, there was an emergency in a in, in city. I needed to be there. They'd understand. But if I said, well, you know, I can't meet with you right now because I've set aside that time to pray. Well, what would we hire you for? Well, you hired me to pray. <laughs> no, no you didn't get hired to pray. No. But the point is, Paul said, be grateful for this man who wrestles in prayer for you. Martin Luther uh, really understood this when he... Uh, uh, was had a, a, a day ahead of me that looked like it was just full of activity, Luther would, would often say, oh, there's so much to do today, I need to pray longer. He didn't conclude what I can conclude pretty quickly. There's so much to do today, Lord, you'll understand. <laughs> I can't pray too much. Uh, it was this saying of Luther's that uh, provided the title for a very good book on prayer, Uh, too busy not to pray Uh, write this down Uh, this is from Dr. A.J. Gordon he said you can do more than pray after you've prayed but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed Okay, there's more to do than pray you can do that after you've prayed but you can never do more than pray Until you have prayed. Uh, Mary Slusser was an activist. Uh, She was a missionary, a single woman in West Africa. Her entire adult life, she rescued orphans. Her house was filled with uh, many of them were babies that were twins. That, according to the local uh, animist tribes around them, uh, if if, if a twin, if if there were twins, uh, one of them had been the mother had been inseminated by a demon, and so we let both twins die. So she. She was particularly rescuing twins, but she was rescuing all babies who were left to, to die. And by the way, you know she, this is what she did: she rescued orphans and little infants. There were so many in her home at one place. She 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 invented a, a system of pulleys in her house where she could lay in bed with fifteen babies crying and you know pull a string, and all of them were you know if <laughs> you can picture that if you've got the mechanical ability to do that. But that's what she did, brothers and sisters. There is no one busier. In the world than a, than a mom with small children. Now, prime ministers, kings, whatever, they're never as busy as a mom who is exhausted and taking care of little ones. So here's Mary Schlesser, and she was, she was tough. Uh, there are stories about her, a warring tribe who'd meet on the field of battle, and she would walk out between them, and she was little. And she looked at them and said, Now, you, you boys, stop this. <laughs> they'll, they'll, Something like that. And they would stop. Because she was just that kind of woman. We have a lot of her letters written back to her supporters at home. And I gotta read you one of her letters. Uh, it's, it's just so good. And again, this was written by an activist. This is not a person who, uh, who's sitting alone in a, in a monastic cell, nothing wrong with that. And who's just sort of you know praying. I mean, she is she's living by prayer. But one of her letters home. My life is one long, daily, hourly record of answered prayer. For physical health, for mental overstrain, for guidance given marvelously, for enmity to the gospel subdued, for food provided at the exact hour needed, for everything that goes to make up life in my poor service. I can testify with a full and often wonder-stricken awe that I know God answers prayer. I have proved during the long decades alone that as far as man's help is concerned, God answers prayer. It is the very atmosphere in which I live and breathe and have my being. And it makes life grand and free and a million times worth living. I can give no other testimony. Food is scarce just now. We live from hand to mouth. <laughs> I like this. Uh, one of her contemporaries uh, was uh, George Mueller, who, uh, who founded many orphanages in England. And uh, he never asked for anything. Oh, he asked God all the time. Uh, and he, uh, that was just the way he did it. He just prayed for God to provide and God provided and one day he was telling a, a businessman in London about his method of raising funds, which was to pray. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for funds, but it's just that was what he did. And the businessman was aghast. He said, oh my gosh, you live from hand to mouth. And, and Mueller smiled and said, yes, it's God's hand in my mouth. <laughs> well, back to Mary Schlesser. I can give no other testimony. We live from hand to mouth. We have not more than will be our breakfast today, but I know we shall be fed. God answers prayer. Prayer is the greatest power God has put into our hands for service. Praying is harder work than doing. Now, this woman earned the right to say that because she was always doing. But she said it's harder to pray. But the dynamic lies that way to advance the kingdom. So we pray because God is pleased to let our prayers affect what he does. And in fact, we're always joining God in his prayers. The best book I've read on prayer, this saying will kind of haunt you, but he said, all of our prayers are answers to God's. He's praying, and he said, would you join me in prayer? I may not do anything until you do. That's the way it works. Well, fourth reason, and I'll close with this. We pray, it's radical, it's central, because prayer lets God work on us. Um... Great passage on what God does to us in prayer. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look it up. Paul says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's how Paul, what he, the metaphor he uses for prayer here. I said, it's like when Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai and he would be up there for days with God and he'd come down and his face was glowing. Well, he's saying that's for us and, and, and under the new covenant. Uh, the, the, being in the presence of Jesus in prayer, we began to take on the very image of Christ in us. This is amazing. The very image of Christ in us. Now, uh, the, the first time... I ever saw a man cry in public was when my my pastor, when I was in junior high, the Baptist church I went to in Southern California, His name was Earl Rosenberger, and I was a junior higher, and I didn't uh, I I liked Earl, or Pastor Earl, and I you know I respected him, but he just bored me, bored the socks off of me. I, I was just at that, at that age, when he got up to speak, I just my mind wandered, and you know I. I I think I've been punished uh, for those times, many times, working with college students. But uh, but there, Earl would get, he, he he was saying goodbye to the church. He, he was taking a new pastor, and I was sitting near the front with my buddy, and uh, and we, we were kind of halfway listening and passing notes. And but then I noticed he started to weep, and uh, so I perked up. So I, man, crying in public. <laughs> this is funny. I do it all the time now. But there were there my first experience was little little Earl. Uh, my pastor crying, and what he was doing. Here's what he said to us. He said, he, he quoted Luke, Luke's uh, book of Acts, uh, chapter four, verse thirteen. He said, you know, the the disciples were brought before the Sanhedrin, the supreme court, and uh, they were defying their orders not to preach in the name of Jesus. And then <laughs> these lines, he said. Luke said, they were uh, they were astonished that these men were uneducated and common men. That astonished them that they were speaking the way they were. And then this great line, they took note that they had been with Jesus. They took note that they had been with Jesus and, and, and they because they were astonished at what they were doing. Well, that's when Earl Rosenberger, and I, I do now, just broke down. He said, "I, I hope in the years I've been here, that may, once in a while maybe you've noted that I've been with Jesus, and you know that that's just that's all I want now, as a pastor. Is for some, some somehow people to a sense that I've been with Jesus. You guys, the best thing you can give anybody is not your education." It's, it's not your skill in this or that. The best thing you have to give your family, the people around you, is what has happened to you in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's the best you can give. Well, I'll close with just a little prayer that Jesus prayed when his disciples came back from a mission trip. You can read it in Luke 10. They were really stoked because they had cast out demons. Uh, they had, you know, silenced darkness. And uh, they were so, it said, in your name, we do all these things. And, uh, and then Jesus says something very interesting. Again, you got to read it in Luke 10. He said, don't rejoice that you, that, that the spirits obey you when you speak to them in my name. Rejoice. Oh, this is so profound. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You belong with me. And then he started praying. And again, Luke is writing, giving this report. Uh, And he adds a little phrase. And, And Jesus then, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, said, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and have shown them to the little children. For such was your good pleasure. I think Jesus is saying what I've just been I'm saying what he was just saying. Yeah. It pleased you to get glory for your name through little ones, humble ones, common ones, who are in my house, in my presence. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he looked at his disciples and he said, and I'll leave this with you. He says, kings and prophets have longed to see what you see but they didn't see it. But you do. And so I leave that question with you. Do you see it? What the possibilities are? We can bring all of our best efforts to God, but that's all they are. It's just our best efforts. We lay them at his feet, and then it pleases him to show his glory to those who are standing in his presence. In the name of the Father,